Welcome, everybody, to Crystal Kyle and Friends. Today, we're going to be talking to Marshall Kozlov, who we've done a number of live shows with. Should be an interesting conversation. Yeah, so Marshall is soccer's other co-host on the podcast they do together called The Realignment. And so he is a staple over at Breaking Points on all of our live coverage, live shows, all that stuff. He's a friend of the family. Yeah, stick so around. We we have good chemistry and interesting banter with him. And, you know, we don't agree on decent number of things, and that's always uh, fun. So anyway, we'll get to that in just a minute. Before we do, I had a hard time today um, picking the stories we were going to cover because there were like six of them that I wanted to cover. Yeah. And so you know that these last two that made it in here are... They are, they are <laughs> absolute the gems. Yes. <laughs> All right. So uh, so let's start with this one. Story that came out from an outlet called the Tennessee Holler. And shout out to them. They're a great independent outlet that I've been following for a while. And they do a okay. lot of great work in, in the state of Tennessee specifically. Okay. Well, yeah. th- throw the tweet up there and I'll read it for everybody. This will give everybody the gist of it. Um, hold on. I, I can't read it, baby. The it's thing is a, blocking me. <laughs> here, I'll read it. Here we it's go. A, I, no, I got, it, got, I got it? it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Randy Randy. Anti-Tennessee Lieutenant Governor McNally. You say anti-gay. Okay. Rainbow flag. Oh, my bad. Yeah. Anti-gay Tennessee Lieutenant Governor Mc, uh, Randy McNally is his name. Comments on young gay males racy Instagram pics. I like the emojis that they added there. Uh, <laughs> first, Governor Bill Lee was in drag. We can talk about that in a second as well. Yeah. Now, Lieutenant Governor uh, McNally's... Uh, now, Lieutenant Governor McNally's comments. The hypocrisy is endless. And so then they have a link to the full story. Let me give you a little zoom in on that graphic there. Go ahead and switch to the next, guys. So you can see uh, what many are describing as a twink. <laughs> many many people are saying this. Okay. That's this young 20-year-old man, this mm-hmm. gay man. And uh, this guy, by the way, he's nearly 80 years old. I think he's 79 is the exact number. Okay. And you can see some of his uh, comments there. So the one on the right, Crystal, do you, can you read it the top one? Yeah. It's read that, it for everybody. So that's that comment, I believe, was under the... Uh, close-up pic of this man's ass. Uh, and it says, Finn, you can turn a rainy day into rainbows and sunshine. <laughs> Some of them, one of them said, super look, Finn. Another one just had a heart emoji, which is, um, yeah, I mean. And you have a uh, bunch of hearts and the fire thing as yes, well. Yes. So this guy likes to post suggestive uh, pictures all the time. Now they talked to this guy and he said, I don't, I don't even really follow politics, but that guy's really nice to me. Yeah, he said, we've been friends for a while. And he said, he he did say, I've never talked to him. He's never slid into my, whatever DMs DMs are or Instagram. I don't know what they're called because I don't have an Instagram. Um, So, but there were other things also, if you go through more of the story. Yeah. There are parts where um, uh, Randy says to him, like, hey man, there's like a picture he posted that, the young guy, yeah. of like, he looked like he got into a fight or something. He had, like, scratches on his face or whatever. It just looked like something happened. And the guy says underneath, like, hey, I hope you're okay. Uh, if, if Please call me if not. Or, like, let's talk if not. It was something like that. There was actually a number of instances like that where he said, like, let's talk or whatever. Hmm. So that he might not be telling the truth when he says, oh, we've never, we've never talked. Mm. There's some indication they may have. But it also might be that this is Randy's way of trying to get in there a little closer and not being able to. If Randy's almost 80 years old and clearly had no understanding that like these are public and we can see what you're doing here, then it's also possible he doesn't understand that you even can slide into someone's DMs. I don't don't know if he doesn't realize it's public. I don't know if he doesn't realize that. So he just thought like... I I mean, look, so his people, his people released, like his team released a a statement and it was so funny because it was, the the gist of it was, um, you know, left-wing media organizations are attacking us when 
our man just is sweet to his constituents and stuff, bro. Right. Like he, He's always active on social media. What's the big deal, bro? That was like the gist of it. So and now the point everybody's making, rightfully so, is yeah. that the Tennessee Republican Party has actually been sort of leading the way with a lot of the anti-gay bills and anti-trans Especially bills. Especially anti-trans. Yeah. Yes. There's been a lot of that stuff that's been happening recently. Yeah. Um, now, I haven't seen a detailed breakdown of this guy's record, but there actually was some indication in one of the articles. It was, it was a Daily Mail article, to be fair, which is not the best um, outlet, but at least when it came to certain anti-trans bills, he argued like, hey, I'm not sure we should do this because this is going to affect business interests here. It's going to make Tennessee a state that people don't want to invest in nearly as much because people are going to view this in a negative light for us to crack down like this. There's one that involved like, you know, trans people in sports and there was some other anti-trans bill as well. And so it's a little bit unclear in terms of his specific record yeah. when it comes to how like anti-gay he is. Yeah. But yeah, what are your thoughts? I mean, do we do we have to make the standard point that everybody makes in these stories, which is the most obvious thing in the world? Which is what? Which is like, as a general rule, it's the meme I showed you last night. It's like, you have <laughs> like super conservative politicians. The second anybody's not looking, they're just like, cock. <laughs> you know what I, I'm saying? Yes, it is such, when there's like, listen, I mean, plenty of regular Republicans have, you know, reflexive views on these issues. But when you see someone who's really going all in on their anti-gay or anti-trans stance. Red flag. Red flag. Yeah, you just sure. know that they're struggling. Well, the other piece of this that they referred to in that tweet that uh, Tennessee Holler also revealed is that the governor, whose name I'm blanking on right now. So one of the pieces of legislation that was passed, and obviously the governor signed into law, was like this crackdown on drag shows. Oh, my God, drag shows. We can't have them in public spaces, et cetera, et cetera. And then there's a picture that they dug up of him literally dressed in drag. Right. Which yeah. he doesn't want to, you know, he, he was won't in respond high school. to. He was in high school. Yeah. And, he was dressed like, but he, did, he got very, like offended and sort of stormed away and was like, this is ridiculous. Right, and, exactly. and, and the journalist, to his credit, was asking very, in a very calm way, like, but how is that not drag? Right. <laughs> He's right. It is drag. Like, that's what it is. Yes. But, you know, back then, that wasn't the, the sexy moral panic of the day. So it was totally different. But yeah, I mean, the hypocrisy is very clear and very obvious. So there was a story that just came out that I talked about, which is, have you ever heard of this guy, The Quartering? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, he does this uh, this sort of right-leaning anti-social justice warrior YouTube channel. Okay. And he seemed like he was drinking, although I don't know that for sure. But okay. he sort of, look, they read like drunk tweets, let's just say. Okay. And he sort of spilled the tea a little bit on a lot of these, you know, anti-gay, anti-trans conservative commentators. Oh, really? He I said, didn't see any of this. He said a lot of your like red pill heroes, I believe was the phrase he used. He yeah. said a lot of them are chasing trans people and are swallowing dick. And I think he even, he he may have listed some and then deleted that particular tweet. Mm. But there was a there was a number of people. I think, I think he floated Cernovich for, as one. There was a, that guy, Jack Posobiec, I think he said. Uh, there was that guy, Elijah Schaefer, who used to work for The Blaze and then he got released from The Blaze because even he was too extreme for Glenn Beck. I think he mm. said something that was like anti-Mormon and Glenn Beck's a Mormon and so he, he let him go. That's another one. Yeah. There was a whole, I, of course, very famously, Nick Fuentes, was caught liking, you know, I don't know if it was furry stuff or femboy stuff or whatever. And Alex uh, Alex Jones, I say Nick Fuentes? You said, said Nick Fuentes. Okay, so Alex Jones also was caught with uh, transgender porn on his phone. He was showing, like, he has a camera above him when he does yeah. the show for the articles. He was pulling up a, 
you know, a link for an article and you saw like his tabs and one of the tabs was trans, trans porn. Did you see the uh, woman who was a journalist for the Daily Wire who resigned over the uh, direction that their trans coverage has gone? In? Right. With Matt Walsh and Michael Knowles. And, yeah. yeah. And she laid down. I mean, you can say like, OK, you were a fool for thinking that it was going to be different. But she laid out how, you know, she thought that there was going to there was like a focus on kids and that there was going to be based on science and evidence well, and we whatever. everybody. And then there's this arms race, effectively, to say the most outrageous right. and extreme thing when it right. comes to uh, trans people. And that, you know, now it's gone way beyond just like, we must protect the children. And it's just an all-out assault on anyone that is trans at all. Did you see Michael Knowles, like, attempt desperately to backpedal from the eradicate transgenderism comment he made. Yeah. Yeah, like, there, there is no interpretation of that that's like, you're okay with trans people existing. You right, know I mean? and you obviously said that because you knew, like, this is the view that you have cultivated in your audience that you know will be rewarded. And so it's just like, let me be the most out there in terms of what I'm saying. And, you know, that's, that's what's rewarded. Well, Matt Walsh, a while ago on Twitter, basically said, um, you know, Doctors should be banned from uh, doing any sort of trans surgery for everybody. So the whole game of like, yeah, it's just about the kids, bro. We just want to protect the kids. Very quickly, they made clear that's actually not the case. Right. Because they don't, they don't think it's real. They don't think it should be allowed. They think it's degeneracy. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So like, and to me, I'll never understand it because Matt Walsh does this thing and I covered it the other week. He's like, you know, this is about truth. Like we're fighting for truth. And it's like, if you actually care about truth, you have to acknowledge there are some people that are born biologically male. It's less than 1% of the population, but they're there. They're born biologically male, but they feel, I am female. Yeah. You can't just swat aside the feeling and act like that doesn't exist. No, it literally exists. Who would go through all that trouble? If it wasn't real. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. And it's not like this is a phenomenon that just like popped up. Like, Throughout history. Of exactly. course. Just like in the same way gay people have existed. Yeah. These are the same arguments they used back then. You know, it's degeneracy. It's not It's not natural for, you know, a man to be attracted to a man or a woman to be attracted to a woman. It's like this has existed uh, 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 always, I just, son. And I, I have such a like deja vu feeling because it feels like we've just gone right back to like... 2008, 2010 type of politics. I know. And not only was it that, you know, oh, protect the children turned into, actually, we think transgenderism should be banned for everyone, including, you know, adults and everybody else. But it's also being used to then justify renewed assaults on rights of gay people as yep. well. And bills being introduced in legislatures across the country. Yeah, you showed one the And other that day. coming back into mainstream of GOP politics. Do you remember? I don't remember what state it was. I don't want to put you on the spot. But yeah. you sent me a link the other day that was like, it was one of the red states were basically trying to ban gay marriage again. And it's like, Everything else aside, that's not how this works. You know what I'm saying? Like, you're yeah. not even, you like, the Supreme Court said it is a right. Our interpretation of equal protection under the law is that it is now a right. And they're just like, we're going to ignore the Constitution and the Supreme Court and just say we're going to ban it at the state level. Yeah, I don't remember which state it was specifically either, but yes, that was happening. Yeah, so anyway, um, but ultimately, look, I, I, I'll give you a weird twist at the end of this story here. Okay. Okay. Uh, this might be controversial. If our boy Randy here, hilarious name, by the way, Randy. Of course. Randy's Randy. Perfect. Yeah, like they said. Um, if our boy Randy here actually didn't have a, like an anti-gay history, then the only thing we know is that he actually tried to temper some of the extremism yeah. with the recent comments on the recent bills. Yeah. So if that's the case, I'll give him a pass. I'll give him a pass. The only thing that's weird is 
he's 20, you're damn near 80. Well, you know, I, look, I mean, you're part of this administration that is passing and signing into laws these extreme yeah. bills. So I'm not going to give you a pass. <laughs> he's, cer- he's certainly not like really fighting it he's, in a crusading right. and way. And he's not like, like, he's like I'm hey, resigning maybe, over maybe this assault on people's rights. Relax. No. But every night he's like, twink ass. <laughs> <laughs> he's just like, God, I don't want to know what he does in private looking at those pictures. I love how the kid is like, I like him. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I thought it was funny too. That was right. He did say something about like, you know, I don't want him to use his power to hurt right. people yeah. like me. Mm-hmm. He did yeah. say something like that, but it was a very mellow response. Yeah. Funny. Yeah. The, but the, the age thing, do you, do you view that as like, even if he had a pro record, like a pro gay record, do you view the age thing as like, even though it's legal, it's still too creepy that you just can't. You know what I'm saying? That is a big gap, bro. I'm just saying. It's, it's and I'm not one to police age stuff yeah, at all. But, you know, obviously never for minors, et cetera. But I'm saying, like, legal, legal, but 20 and near 80? I mean, it should be legal, whatever. But, yeah. I'm going to raise an eyebrow. 60 years. I'll raise an eyebrow. 60 years. I'll, I'll raise both eyebrows. How about that? <laughs> <laughs> all right. So now, um, so as we all know, Marianne Williamson's running for president, and you had the White House, Karine Jean-Pierre, the uh, press spokesperson, came out and replied uh when she was asked about it and she basically was sneering and condescending and smug and was making basically the like, dumbest, like oh, most tired crystal ball. Let jokes, me check which, my crystal ball or my orb and let, let, me, let just me check say, her aura and her chakras or whatever the hell. Let me just say as someone who was named crystal ball and has heard every crystal ball joke that has ever been crafted. None of them are funny guys. I can promise you not yeah. a one of them is actually amusing. So, um, and certainly not this one. That's for sure. Yes. So anyway, it was very smug. And the reaction that I've seen, granted, I run in more lefty circles, but the reaction that I've seen has been like, screw you guys, man. You, like, you're so snotty. She's running. She's running on issues. She never took any low blows at anybody. Like, yeah. what do you do? And then there's the hypocrisy that Joe Biden's a Catholic Okay, he eats the body of Christ and drinks the blood of Christ and I walks around with ashes on his forehead. Like, okay, who are we kid? Really? Right. We're going to talk about Marianne being so... Right. And the, uh, the, oh, we care about democracy shtick, which is clearly you don't. Right. Now you got somebody in the race and you'll probably bend over backwards not to debate her. They've already said they don't want to debate her. So there we go. So, and, and rigged the order of the states and every, all of that. Every, it's unbelievable. So anyway, yeah. in step, The View. And The View wanted to comment on this exact story that we just commented on. Um, and let's just say, didn't go in a very good direction. We'll watch and then we'll react. Should Jean-Pierre have made the joke about Williamson? Yeah, I, I think so. <laughs> yeah. I, I gotta tell you, when she was first, you know, uh, in the in the realm of the, the uh, election, I thought it was, she was an interesting character. I mean, Oprah brought us to her as her spiritual guru, and I, I was buying all into the vibe, mind, body, spirit, and stuff, and I was like, this world needs to heal. But then she said some stuff. Yeah. Some stuff. <laughs> then she said, sickness is an illusion and does not exist, and that cancer and AIDS and other physical illnesses are physical manifestations of a psychic scream. My uncle died of AIDS. It didn't look like a physical manifestation of a psychic scream. It looked like a disease that he died from. Um, And so she also said that people can call, can will themselves back to health. My in-laws who died of COVID, um, I'm sure they would have liked to have done that, but they couldn't. And she apologized for casting doubt on clinical depression, calling it a scam. So now... I'm not feeling her crystals and her aura. Okay. <laughs> She's helped and angered a lot of people. She's a, a, a wellness 
what we would now call a wellness guru. You know, I don't think people really take what she has been standing for seriously. Yeah. And so she's going to have to work a little harder so that people don't have that idea about because, you know, when you talk about yourself as a wellness guru Mm -hmm. and people have an idea of who you are, it's up to you to change that. You, the the change you were trying to do hasn't fully come out. People have not seen that change. So if you want to change how people see you and think about you, you have to work a little bit harder, Marianne. So before we react, let me give you, Marianne clapped back on Twitter Mm -hmm. and she said the following. Who is more serious about illness, the candidate who calls for universal health care or a president willing to tolerate 68,000 Americans dying from lack of health care each year and saying he would veto Medicare for all if it came to his desk? I know where I was during the AIDS epidemic, holding the hands of scores of victims while they died, donating and raising hundreds of thousands of dollars to help them and founding an organization that has served 14 million meals to homebound patients. Whoopi, you said I have to, quote, work harder to correct the record. I would be glad to come on The View to correct the record, uh, to correct the categorically false narratives that continue to be spewed about what I stand for and who I stand with. Now, I should also add that nearly every reply, The View tweeted that segment. Right. As if, like, they're proud of it. Right. Nearly every reply, from even from View fans, was like, this is totally unfair. Yes. Now, here's the thing. They seem to be arguing that Marianne Williamson is against taking any and all medicine and she she thinks you can heal any and all illness with your own mind. That's a pretty bold thing to assert that somebody believes. They could have invited her on to ask her, but then they know that they wouldn't get away with the smear because she would have laughed that point out of the room and been like, of course I don't believe that. Correct. Yes. Listen. You can see how hollow and bad faith their approach is here by the fact that they don't actually bring up a single one of her issue positions. Instead, everything is, and Sonny's literally reading off a paper of talking points there. Let me take as many quotes as I can out of context to smear and dismiss her as a human being so I don't even have to deal with any of her actual policy positions and platform and what she is saying and talking about. And so, yes, it'd be very inconvenient to actually have Marianne there and have to engage with her because, first of all, she could disabuse them immediately of all of the fake nonsense that they're spewing about who she is and what she said and what she's done in her life. And number two, they wouldn't be able to avoid having discussion about how her issue positions, especially on the issue of healthcare, are vastly superior than Joe Biden's. I think they said at one point um, in a, there was a part that we didn't play here. They're talking about how her views are dangerous. Okay. Joe Biden said he would veto Medicare for all. As she points out, 68,000 people a year die from lack of health care. And she's the one that is dangerous when she stands in favor of universal health care. So it was just it, it par for the course. I shouldn't be surprised, but it's still just disgusting to see the way they will so casually smear someone in service of protecting what is fundamentally an absolutely immoral status quo. Marianne Williamson has already told us that she would sign an executive order on day one in office to lower the price of all prescription drugs, which, by the way, she has the authority to do already under the Bayh-Dole Act of 1980. 
because any money that the U.S. government uses, like taxpayer money that's used to create medicine. To fund uh, research, yeah. To fund to fund research. Um, the government is then allowed to basically do price controls on that because we paid for it. So she said, I'll sign an executive order to you know lower the cost of all the drugs. Joe Biden was only able to lower, and he didn't do it through executive order, by the way, which he could have, but he chose not to. He did it through the IRA only for some prescription drugs and only for seniors. So you want to have a conversation about anti-medicine? I mean, really, uh, I really think the debate ending point is that first point that Marianne laid out here, which is like, how dare you call me anti-medicine when I'm in favor of Medicare for all and he's against it. And we're talking about 68,000 people who die every year from not having access to basic health care. You can take any quote out of context you want to over her entire 70 years of life. It doesn't change the fact that she stands on the side of medicine and healthcare, and Joe Biden stands against it. But they can't have that discussion. So instead, they go with like the personal smears. They could have invited her on. They didn't want to invite her on. Yeah. And by the way, the thing at the end there where, where Whoopi, you could tell Whoopi is kind of, it's almost like she's trying to criticize, but can't really find exactly the right way to criticize her. It's uncomfortable, her. She's right? She's saying like, hey, it's on you to change people's minds or something. The reason why she's reacting like that is because she was in Hollywood when Marianne Williamson was there, and she knows what Marianne Williamson was doing. She yeah. knows that she dedicated her life to try to help AIDS victims. That's the part that really, really bothers me because— I mean, some of you may not be old enough to remember, but the way that gay men were treated during the AIDS crisis, like the early, uh, it was horrific. I mean, they were treated like untouchables, like they, you know, were, you couldn't be around them and totally ostracized. It was horrifying. And Marianne Williamson was there ministering to them, raising money for them, officiating their funerals. And so I know it has to strike a nerve with her. When she sees that all dismissed and then characterizing her as downplaying the AIDS crisis, it's, it's, it's the polar opposite of, of the truth, reality, which is, you know, that's Karl Rove politics 101. You take their strength and try to make it their weakness. Yeah. And that's what they're doing here. And by the way, the only point in there, which was somewhat in defense of Marianne Williamson, you're going to love this, is Joy Behar says, um, well, I mean, she's not she's not George Santos. She's not Marjorie Taylor Greene. Well, thank you for your ringing endorsement, Joy Behar. She's not the literal worst pathological liar the world has ever seen. Thank you very much. We had the perfect segue there talking about people who are like inflexible and narrative humpers and whatever. We have the opposite of that to talk to you now. Marshall Kozlov of the Realignment Podcast. Let's get to it. Welcome, Marshall Kozlov. Glad to have you. Yeah, I'm glad to be here. We do a lot of uh, breaking point slide shows together, so it's cool to do this through uh, Zoom for yeah. a second. And with and without Sagar, so we can all talk shit about him. And say what we really think. <laughs> it does. It does kind of feel like a home game, you know. It does feel like. Yeah, well, they're like you know, this is part of our the extended family. For yeah, sure. yeah. I mean, I, not that I want to start by patting ourselves on the back, but we do get many comments that we have phenomenal chemistry, all four of us together. And that's a rare thing in the commentary space. You get four people together, usually, you know, does, doesn't work out too well. Kyle gets a little jealous, though, Marshall, because the comments are all always 100% favorable about you. And they're like a little slightly more mixed on Kyle. They're not mixed on me. They're like, I don't like this guy. They are mixed. That's not true. No, Some of the is, biggest the videos we've I done were you. 
I've been meaning to say this to Kyle for a while. This is actually frustrating on my end because the actual take is that it's all about you and not really about me. I'm just the means by which people celebrate their like whatever like pissed offness with Kyle. It's not about any, I could say anything. And the people were like, man, Marshall's so smart. It's the opposite of what Kyle said. <laughs> so I, I, I look at that the totally other uh, perspective. So I appreciate hearing that. <laughs> yeah, no, that that's actually, that that's really funny. You told me one time that you like rewatched our student loan debt debate. It was me and Crystal versus you and Sagar. And then you went to the comments and then the comments were like vicious against you and Sagar. And then you realized like, oh wait, this one was posted on Kyle's channel. But if you went to the breaking yes. point chat and looked at the comments in the same debate, it was probably the exact Kyle, opposite. Kyle got owned. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant, Marshall. Never been stated before this accurately. <laughs> no, but I do think like, I don't think that has to do with just a, a reflexive anti-me sentiment, which does exist to some extent in, in some corners. But I do think it's because, you know, people think you're very thoughtful because you are very thoughtful. And so one of the things I wanted to to start by asking you is like, how, how do you view yourself politically? Because when I think of Sagar, for example, there was a time where he was clearly, you know, somewhat conservative, but then he had sort of a, you know, a, an awakening moment around January 6th where he thought, this I don't agree with this. And these people know that what they're saying is not even true. So he kind of became a little bit more of a centrist, I would say. Do you view yourself in a, sim in a similar way or is it different? Yeah, no, I think my awakening, if you listened way too deeply to the podcast happened a few months earlier than Sagar. It was really around the August 2020 Republican National Convention when basically the Republican Party literally had their convention. And for the first time in modern American history, they didn't have a platform. So for me, that was just the end point of a four-year journey where I already wasn't identifying as a Republican, but just very clearly this realignment political movement with interesting ideas and new forces, all it basically just ended in a hyperculture war where we were explicitly stating the policy didn't matter. So that was just my moment where I was just totally, not even just like on the like uh, partisan identity train, but just like the, this is not going to end well train. Talk a little bit more about how you see all of that and like, you know, the sort of formation of your political views, the evolution of them and how you viewed the Republican Party and the potential of this new populist right energy and where it might take things versus the reality of what actually happened. Because I'd love to hear a little bit more of your detailed analysis of all of that. Yeah, so a couple of things, like quick biography. I'm a adopted Black Jew from Oregon. My side joke here is that you will know that my life is in the shitter if I ever sell out and write just a crappy ghost-written book for that. If you spend any time <laughs> on the institutional right, you just deeply are aware of the fact that like a Black uh, Ukrainian adopted Jew could write the most just like masturbatory, horrible book of all time, like co-authored by like, Kim Kleischek or something like that. So that's how you, that would be my cry for help um, if I ever... If if that ever happens, we're going like, to intervene before that happens, me. Marshall. <laughs> I'll see you in the audience, but no. So like that was my that was my background. So I I've I've come to realize I'm a very um, contrarian personality. So when I'm growing up in Oregon, uh, my dad was a member of the IPCC, so he like did a lot of work with climate change, obviously. So I was really interested in like the right because it was just different than what I was experiencing. Um, in Oregon. And then when mm -hmm. I came out to DC, um, I came out um, after going to school at University of Oregon, where like you have the Trump moment. And, and I never was a Trump guy, like literally never. But seeing Hillary Clinton lose on 2016 was kind of a crescendoing reality of like, wow, like everything that you were raised to believe in, 
in terms of how politics is supposed to work, in terms of how the rules are, the possibilities, that was just wrong. So I basically spent the next four years just really unmoored, really just sort of like, I don't know what I'm thinking. I don't think anyone knows what they're doing. So I'll start a podcast with Sagar and we'll talk to people about those sorts of ideas. Um, and when it comes to the populist, right, I want to keep this answer decently short. Um, there was a lot of excitement because the Trump moment clearly pushed away a part of the right that I had just no interest in. Um, I had no interest in the Jeb Bush right. I had no interest in defending the Iraq war or cutting social security. So when you see Trump doing that, you're like, oh, wow, like everything that you don't like about the Republican Party, let's put aside Trump's racist statements, is being pushed aside. Maybe something new could come about. Um, but very clearly, when you have, you know, Trump passed the tax cut, you see the Obamacare, um, you know, uh, repeal focus, that possibility really closed down. Um, and then the way I really just conceive of this now, too, is that there is a populist right. Um, this is probably getting popular with people, but there are people like J.D. Vance who are, I think are putting their money where their mouth is when it comes to like the East Palestine stuff in terms of like really holding railways to account, fighting with members of his party about like the overall like market forces. There are people in the Republican Party who are still trying to say, it's crazy. You want to give the federal government more control over the railroads. Let the market work it out. That's crazy to me. I think it's crazy to most people. So it's good to see JD is taking those stands. Now he's the senator from Ohio. There was a good Washington Post piece or a political piece about how basically a bunch of Democratic senators were shocked that they could work with JD on this. But what I've done is I've inverted the order in the sense that it's not that J.D. is going to take over the entire Republican Party. I think it's largely that there are going to be certain issues where populist Republicans who are, I think, acting in good faith can do broader work with a Joe Biden Republican, with a Joe Biden Democratic Party that is doing really interesting work on these issues. So that's the unsexy place I've kind of ended up at. So it's really interesting. First of all, there was like 17 things in there that I want to respond to. I have like, already have like a page of notes, but I'll try to just go one by one and we'll keep bouncing off each other. Um, so it's interesting to hear your thoughts on the populist right. I want, I want to give you my view and then hear your reaction. So um, I think there was a time, maybe a brief window where uh, I thought maybe, maybe this is a real thing. You know, Trump 2015, 2016, like you said, there were some things he said that were populist, whether it's, you know, I'm not going to cut your social security, not going to cut your Medicare, which by the way, is one of the things that he actually has stuck to, which, okay, credit. Um, trade. Trade, you know, tra the trade stuff, but, you know, 200,000 jobs were outsourced under him and seemingly on all the other uh, points, uh, you know, in his favor of he sounds populist, you actually go to the record and it totally contradicts that. I mean, he destroyed the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, for example, which had returned $12 billion to defrauded Americans. As you referenced, he did the, the $2 trillion tax cut, which was largely for the wealthy and corporations. And I can go on. So my, my view of the populist right is that uh, I view it as largely fraudulent and even like the best of them. So for example, there was a time when Josh Hawley um, actually proposed a bill where it was like, whatever, $2,000 checks during the middle of the pandemic. Yeah, and, I, you know, I came out and I said, hey, man, credit. I don't care, you know, I don't care who you are, what your party identification is. If you're going to propose the right thing, I'll give you credit on the right thing. I, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm fair on that front. But then when I go to the rest of Josh Hawley's record and it's like, he was in favor of uh, right to work, which is, of course, anti-union legislation. He was against $15 minimum wage. Like, there was just a number of things where it's like, even if I'm being as kind as possible, it strikes me as largely fraudulent. And then those same characters tend to, lean way more on the you know, on the culture war side, which of course I would define, and I think you would too, as like anti-populist. That's like the polar opposite. Populism is lean into the economic stuff and help working people. This is like, let me lean into the culture war for just the right-wing side of the culture war. So where is my analysis incorrect in viewing it as fraudulent? 
Yeah, so I'd say it's correct from your perspective. It's incorrect from a populist Republican's perspective. So when you say populism is about economics, um, I think a lot of right populists, and this is what I just kind of discovered over time, would just say, like, actually, we think that culture, that economics is really downstream from culture. So you would see a populist Republican is spending let's say 90% of their time talking about LGBTQ people, um, school curriculums, like CRT, you would say something like, well, like I thought you were a populist. You were going to focus on like a more class oriented politics. That was the opportunity for realigning American politics. A populist would say, well, in the same way, Kyle, you would identify like economic elites in the pharmaceutical industry or in the like, military industrial complex or like Wall Street as being centerpieces of our culture that we need to populistly fight back against. They would say we need to fight back against pop against elites in academia and elites at the Department of Education and elites in all these big government agencies who sneer and look down upon like everyday people who are representing with these CRT and LGBTQ plus like fights. So I think the real issue here, and this isn't your fault, is that there was an incentive at a media level for I think a lot of people on the right. Here's the here's the thing, the part that's like. I don't want to say fraudulent, but I think like in bad faith, I think a lot of people on the right tried to have it both ways and implied they cared about economics more than they actually did. So it's yeah. so easy. And you guys, I know, I know you two both see this. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, Crystal. Every Republican and their cousin from now on is going to say, we're the party of the working class. Ted Cruz said that, right? When you actually look mm-hmm. at his policy positions, it's entirely like very plutocratic in the way that you two would put it. But what Ted Cruz has figured out is that a lot of these like working class like white voters, even some like working class, like Latino voters, like in Texas, they are voting on those cultural issues. So Republicans figured out that they didn't have to actually, um, let's say that they could have it both ways and that they could be totally fine at the economic status quo, but they could also wage war in local school boards and say, look at us, we're populist and get points to certain voters. Yeah. Um, and that's the tragedy of the moment. Yeah, I think Josh Hawley is actually the perfect example of this. Because just before January 6th, you know, he was like, he did that little thing with Bernie Sanders and the checks and whatever. And you're like, okay, maybe. But then what's the thing that he got the most popularity and notoriety and fundraising from the Republican base? It's the fist pump on January 6th. Mm -hmm. So in the same way that it's much easier for liberals to just do the surface level hollow identity politics and get like kudos from a Democratic base, of course, it's easier to not challenge capital. Of course, it's easier to like lean into the culture war and kind of pay lip service to those other pieces because that's, you know, much sort of friendlier to entrenched power ultimately. Can I add one thing, Crystal? Of course. It's actually even more toxic on the right, because let me put it this way, right? Let's take, I'm trying to construct your, your, your nightmare candidate. Let's take just like a very like Wall Street aligned, like super close to the center, center left Democrat who says all the right things on social issues, but is entirely like anti Wall Street reform, anti populist, all those different categories. Yeah. At least he or she is not able to claim that the fact that they're pretty in the center on social issues from the Democrats' perspective are populist. So, so, right. so let's, let's put on this. Um, a New York Democrat is not going to say, hey, like, I'm pro-trans people. By the way, that's the same thing as me waging war on Wall Street. That doesn't happen. Except right now on the right, you'll have someone spend 99.9% of their time obsessing about racial, like, 
LGBTQ issues and then say, oh, by the way, I'm also accomplishing economic populism kind of. I mean, if you want, if, you, if I could recommend your listeners an episode that will make them turn off the episode in five minutes, it's Sagar, my interview of Vivek Ramaswamy. Well, that's actually, um, I wanted to bring yeah. that up because that's I enjoyed the thing, that, by the way. I enjoyed yeah, that interview. That's the thing that I, I think that captures it so perfectly because he'll say some things, you know, I have my own cre- critique of ESG, which is that it's just this like corporate fig leaf that isn't actually doing anything. It's like greenwashing, which is a, a common tactic in the corporate world to make people feel good about this brand when they're actually not really changing and doing anything. But he has this critique of ESG that just is so confusing to me because it's like corporations shouldn't be taking these social positions. But then on the other hand, I'm not going to do anything about corporate power and I'm going to create structures so that corporations are actually pushing the social positions that I want. And so, yeah, it's sort of it, it does illustrate exactly that dynamic you're talking about where he can posture as a populist and say things that are incredibly perplexing to me, like I'm going to be a unifier while also leaning into the most divisive, fraught culture war issues that you can imagine. Ever. I mean, and that, that's that's the, it was such a frustrating, look, I'm on your guys' podcast, so I'll just like talk shit. Um, <laughs> I can't do this on the realignment um, and, and I'm not going to give commentary before the breaking points, like part we like, published, but it was just such a frustrating interview because that interview to me if I were to basically like show, if I were to take a single interview I've done, go back in time and talk to 2016 Marshall and basically say like, hey, I'm going to totally unred pill you. I'm totally going to make you like not think this is the, I would, I would play that interview because like that interview is the actual logical culmination of the Trump presidency. Um, also, by the way, you you guys noticed, you like listened to the interview. Vivek was very squishy when it came to whether or not he would perform social security. Yep. Like, oh, he wasn't he actually, squishy. Like, it, 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 he was open to it. I was being, I was trying to be at least a little generous. Uh-huh. Um, like it, we, we, we all know that like he totally would have no problem privatizing social security. He totally doesn't believe the Trump position, which I think Trump actually, because, you know, we, we all know this. Trump was kind of like a, he was a Democrat for a long time. I think his pro-entitlement programs with the exception of Obamacare, which is obviously deeply personal in terms of his hatred of Obama, he's basically retained his democratic 1990s views on like entitlement programs. Um, but Vivek was totally against social security. And yeah, the, the divisiveness part was just crazy to me. It, the, the thing here's, I'd love to hear your guys' thought on this. The thing that I just don't understand um, as a kind of like reformed politician kid, I was very much into like student Congress um, in high school. I was youth governor of Oregon. I went to Boys Nation. So I kind of like get Vivek's mentality. I get Josh Hawley's mentality. You get the sense that what they want to do every single day is wake up and just fight 50% of the country. That mm-hmm. is the only conclusion from watching the interview. Like my first most important act is I'm going to abolish affirmative action at the federal government level, right? We're not even talking about like the whole mainstream of American society. He basically just means when it comes to federal hiring practices, he's going to like repeal this program that frankly no one's ever actually heard of. Um, that to me is just the logical culmination. He's not actually waking up saying to himself, hey, like I'm a China hawk. If we pursue the policies I believe in, the American domestic political economy is going to be entirely wrecked because we're not ready for decoupling. Uh, our supply chains are totally screwed up. We haven't set up friend shoring yet. I'm not going to like focus on that. Instead, I'm going to focus on like dunking on like amorphous black people, which is obviously what he's actually doing. That was crazy to me. Or, or the climate religion, as he calls climatism, which is like saying, you know, people who believe in climate change and are environmentalists, it's like you're, you guys are part of a cult. Yeah, the thing that bothers me to your point is like, he says all those things and takes all those positions while also insisting I'm pro like national unity. Right. And it's like, just 
you don't don't say that part. Just say the first part, and then at least it's more honest. It comes as advertised. You know what I mean? Yep. Yeah, no, that's exactly it. Oh, sorry, Crystal. Please go ahead. Go ahead. Finish your thought. Well, no, and the the, the quick culminating thought is just that, um, especially on the the, the the climatism thing is fascinating to me because I've done a couple of interviews with kind of like this like right wing um, climate category, and what they've kind of figured out as opposed to the 2010s is you don't have to be Marco Rubio and say, "Well, I'm not a scientist. Like, I don't know whether climate change is real." Like that was always like at a, at a debate level that was just dumb. Um, say. Climate change is real. Global, global warming is real. And just poo-poo every single actual position someone would take to address that issue. I mean, we didn't get into this during the interview. We only had 28 minutes. But like, Vivek's actual position is that we should abolish electric vehicle subsidies. That was an example of climate religion. And once again, we could have a big debate about whether or not we should be subsidizing like Model S's and Teslas and whatever. But like, then he, he, he has gotten so extreme. That a position that Elon Musk of all people supports is is an example of climate religion. Like, is Elon Musk a climate religionist? Like, it's 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 actually just like totally um, incoherent and deeply frustrating. And the fact that a thirty seven year old who is very smart, is deeply credentialed, is very successful, is ending up with these positions is an example of how toxic I think trying to play five D chess with like the realignment right can actually be. It's a it's a total disaster. Yeah, I mean, I. That's exactly what I took away from it was it's like the next evolution of climate denialism. Like the the conversation has gotten far enough so that, you know, even a majority of Republicans now say, OK, climate change is real. We should probably be doing something about green energy like these are decent things. And so rather than taking that head on, they're like, isn't Greta Thunberg like a freak and a weirdo? And aren't they so extreme? And I'm not against like dealing with climate change. It's just that these people have turned it into a cult and a religion, which keeps you from having to deal with any of the specifics of the proposal. So as one example, in that interview, he even mentioned something about how like, oh, they're not even in favor of nuclear energy. And it's like, okay, well, there are parts of the you know, climate-focused environmentalist movement that still hold that position. But actually, even Greta Thunberg <laughs> has shifted on that part. So, like, you should be declaring mission and go, like, yay, congratulations. You came around to a better position on this, one that I support. But they're invested in the straw man and the caricature because it keeps them from having to actually engage in a debate about not just is climate real, but, like, what should we actually be doing about it? No, and I think this is also, I want to go back to Kyle's point around national unity and that gets to this. The, the reason why I've really enjoyed like working with the two of you guys for, for a couple of years is it's actually like forced me to not caricature people who I disagree with. Like Vivek is literally, I, don't, I was going to ask this. I'm like, when was the last time you actually spoke to someone you respect who's like even a degree closer to the left than you are, which is probably just like never. Uh, he would count talking to some like lame journalist who asks if he's racist, um, <laughs> which which is lame when that happens, like, you know, whatever. Um, but he, he hasn't actually spoken to people. I, I speak of people I respect like you two, so that's helped me like think about these things. My perspective on national unity is national unity isn't like West Wing Kumbaya. I think it's actually just identifying national objectives that we could actually work on. So I think something that the three of us and like including Sagar could actually work on is like, hey, like it's 
really bad that America's like vital pharmaceutical like drugs are dependent on China. Um, we could disagree about Taiwan. We can disagree about like the U.S. like military posture in Asia, but we can agree that wow, COVID exposed that there's this really big vulnerability. So if Vivek was serious about being like a uniter who's bringing new ideas here, he would say something like, "I've gone. To, I've look. I'm obviously on the right. I'm a Republican. There are all these things that Crystal and Kyle like won't agree with me on. But here are these like five things that I actually know for a fact. I could sit down with Matt Stoller, Crystal, Kyle, Greta, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and like work on. And that's what actual national unity would look like. But, it's not everything, but there are five things. And isn't part of the problem, Marshall, that Joe Biden has basically occupied some of those positions already? I am going to not name this person, but there is a person who I deeply respect um, on the uh New right. This isn't Orrin Cass, by the way, because he's done some breaking points comment. But this is this is the person who matters. Uh, he said, quote, yeah, Joe Biden has made a lot of the new right economics thing very, 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 very difficult because he's basically given them 85 percent of what they want um, in terms of uh like, look, like, and this is also a Josh Shapiro thing, because um, I'd love to talk with you about like up and coming politicians. Josh Shapiro, new Democratic, uh, new Democratic, um, you know, governor of Pennsylvania. And I probably don't want to sound like a Joe Biden hack here, but this is what I actually believe. So apologies for that. But Josh Shapiro, it, one of the first things he did was like remove the higher ed requirement for government jobs because he's like, yeah, it's like messed up that we have this arbitrary requirement at a time when college is so expensive. I just read a great article in the Atlantic by Ronald Brownstein talking about how like. Something Joe Biden's folks spent a lot of time and attention on is saying, like, hey, like when we're doing these big Chips Act bills, when it comes to the infrastructure bill, when it comes to the Inflation Reduction Act, it's very important that these jobs not just be all premised on like everyone getting like a bachelor's degree or a master's degree. Joe Biden said, quote, like, my field of dreams is people who didn't go to college, people who went to college, someone who has a PhD, someone who dropped out of high school, all working together on these sorts of projects. That is exactly what the new right would have a good faith version of their presidential candidate articulating. So when Joe Biden is articulating things that way, and when Josh Shapiro is getting rid of the higher ed requirement in the, in the state government of Pennsylvania, you've lost a lot of faith if you're actually approaching these economic issues in good faith. And you'll actually, if you read deeply on most serious new economic people on the right, Julius Krein, some of Orrin's work, they're basically conceding this already too. Yeah, I mean- it's interesting to hear that perspective. I, I definitely think that there's there's truth in that. Um, to a point you made earlier uh, about engaging, I I always felt like it's just not fun or interesting to straw man people. It is much more like engaging and intellectually stimulating to like steel man the person you're talking to and then try to respond because anybody could like swat down a straw man that like people could see when you're doing that. Like it's obvious when you're doing that. And so um, it's just much more fruitful and nourishing and entertaining to like take the the best argument of the other side and then respond to that. And then more often than not, you'll be saying, well, I see where you have a point here, but you know, on these other things, let me explain to you in detail why I disagree. Um, now, the other thing uh, to go back to Vivek for a second, like, the thing that I've seen a lot of recently is obviously dialogue around wokeness. And I feel like it's sort of used as an excuse now where instead of having like a specific critique and defining it, it becomes like literally anything I don't like is woke and I'll just throw the wet blanket of wokeness over it. And that's enough to dismiss it, like label it and dismiss it because there are examples like of, of wokeness I would agree is bad, but like it would be, 
you know, college kids who are disinviting a speaker who has views that they don't agree with or whatever, trying to like get a comedian get somebody fired kicked or off. Whatever. Yeah, get somebody fired or whatever. Like that, that's a very specific example of like quote unquote wokeness gone bad that I would agree with. But in order to have that critique, you have to, you know, there has to be like a definition of wokeness and you have to apply it in the correct areas. But now it's like you'll hear like raising the minimum wage is woke. And it's like, Mm-hmm. What? Like, what are you talking about? Do you agree with me that this, like, this is now the landscape of, of the debate around wokeness? Yeah, no, I know. The, the, and this is why, in general, I just avoid this topic because, look, at a, at a, at a, at a top line, the reason why I avoid the wokeness topic is I, there are crazy things that happen on college campuses. There are crazy things that happen at a cellar corridor, um, media companies. Um, you know, we could name a million different examples of like, quote unquote, wokeness that's like gone too far. My objection is to anyone who does, who decides to make that reality the central organizing principle of American politics right now. That's what a lot of people are doing. Like if you actually right. like, look at Vivek's campaign, like his, the actual belief he has is that wokeness is just at the center of everything. And until we do this and this and this and that um, to address woke issues, we can't move forward, which is just like totally just like not true. Um, I also think this is another example of where contradictorily, like Joe Biden just being so old is actually productive because he's just so disengaged from these debates. He just moves past them and acts like they don't exist. And then you have like all sorts of like woke incidents, um, you know, in uh, like other levels of the federal government. Um, I, I interviewed representative like Mike Gallagher, who's the chair of the China Select Committee. Um, he's very smart, like very eloquent. You guys would disagree from a lot of stuff, but like I genuinely respect him as a politician. And he's right when he says it's probably like not a great look that the U.S military right now is doing like massive DEI conferences, especially when people are just underlyingly questioning the validity of a lot of these studies about whether DEI is even an effective means of like handling diversity in the workplace. So like I can look at those scenarios with the quote unquote like woke military and say to myself like, yeah, I definitely wouldn't approve that if I were under Secretary of Defense for like force procurement, but I'm also not going to organize all of my political viewpoints based on that fact. And I think that's like the number one thing that you basically have to tell people. And then I think the other thing, um, just to add here when it when it comes to the um, wokeness debates is I think you see this in like the insane, this isn't your guys' area as much. So, you know, that's true. I'm a foreign policy first guy. The way the right, right before the Russia's invasion of Ukraine was talking about how like we have like a woke military and the Russians are so like manly and like not LGBTQ friendly, like once again, like put aside every single thing you believe about the war in Ukraine, like the negotiations, what our policies to be. The Russian military was just so obviously not the behemoth that Ted Cruz's still up tweet um, said it was. And he was basing and I think he is being a very smart guy was operating in bad faith, but he was projecting to impressionable people that the fact that Putin doesn't like gay people was at all like in accord with the military capacity. And then obviously seriously implying that if America pretended gay people didn't exist, um, we would somehow be like militarily stronger. Like that was a real, like completely depressing moment for me. Um, that I, it's very hard to come back from. That's a perfect example. I didn't even know that discourse was really going on on the right. That like, oh, it's real. It's real. It's it's, it's real. It's like, <laughs> so, so I believe you. Thing, like, 
<laughs> yeah, but Blake, Blake Masters, um, people don't, like, once again, I'm in this weird place where, like, I'm, like, center-right on foreign policy, probably, but I'm still spending time in, like, left discourse, so I hear from both ends of this, um, and most people that don't know this, like, Blake Masters was talking about, like, Senate candidate from Arizona, one of his, like, less publicized ideas, he's like, we need to fire all of these woke, you know, ridiculous generals, everyone who's higher than a colonel just needs to go, and left listeners who, like, hate the military-industrial complex are going to be shocked to hear that, like, you know, Mark Milley and all these people, that they're these people who just are walking on pride flags. Right. And this is, it's, it's, it's wild to me. It's <laughs> brain, me it's actually Milley. brain poisoning. But sorry, yeah, Crystal, go on. Well, no, it's a perfect example. Because if you look at the totality of our military and military industrial complex and the amount of money that's spent on it and the amount of money that's wasted on all of our foreign adventurism and like all of those and the corruption and the way that they capture the political class and like basically blackmail presidents into doing what they want to do. If you look at all of that and you're like, the real problem Too many trans people. is this one <laughs> tiny diversity line item in the budget. Like that's an insane view of the world. But and that's what, you know, with we keep going back to Vivek, but and I hate to like just continue. Shaking, but he's sort of the like distillization or this is that a word? Distillation. That's, yeah, it's distillation. Yeah. There we go. Yeah. Of this whole concept, because his whole thing is like, I'm the anti-woke guy. So all of the most ridiculous parts of this whole worldview sort of come through with him. But that's when I look at the way that they're viewing American society and it's like, oh, I have this critique of corporations. It's that I don't like the ideology of these individual CEOs. It's like, okay, but what about the fact that they have so much power in society yeah. to start with? Like, there's always going to be ones that you like or don't like, have good ideology, bad ideology, whatever. The problem is that they're so influential and they have so much power in society and there's so much government capture. And it's like, you want to do anything about that? And he's like, no. It is, it is, <laughs> it is a clever trick, though. Now that you talk yeah, about it, it is. it is a clever trick because it makes it seem like, oh, I'm, like I'm standing up. Yeah, I'm standing up to the establishment. I'm standing up to corporations. Right. And it's like, not really, like in a very narrow way. But yeah. that's not like you're missing the, you know, the majority of the picture. You're missing and, the yeah. actual like the problem, the core of the power right. and like where where the issue is. Yeah. I mean, where do you see, Marshall, the Republican Party as being right now? Because in certain respects, any sort of flirtation they had with a different economic policy post-Trump, I mean, parts of that just instantly fell away. Now you have Mike Pence, who's like, I'm actually do want to privatize Social Security. But except Trump is standing strong on Trump that. Is, and is, surprising because that's the one part of his populist approach that he didn't back off of. Not only that, but he sort of, along with Joe Biden, shamed the House Republicans yes. to taking entitlements off the table yes, in Biden terms of the debt ceiling. Yep. So do you see Trump as having a lasting impact on the Republican Party in terms of economics? Where do you think the Republican base is as we enter a new primary? And what do you think are like the key fault lines because there is there is like an intra-party kind of battle going on right now for what the future of the Republican Party is going to look like. What do you see as the most crucial dividing lines there? Yeah, uh, a million things I want to respond to. So, a number one, um, Trump accomplished like a, a big thing that Trump accomplished. Um, in 2016 to 2020 was just forcing us away from like the very like center left center right consensus on China. Um, so I could say that Trump has made the Republican Party like much more um, China skeptical, much more hawkish, much more favor of uh, decoupling. But that's honestly the Biden policy, too. So that's just like a general consensus issue. Um, the only area 
where I think there's a real debate on is the social security one. And this one, and this one, this one's fascinating because it could go a couple of different directions. So on the one hand, the Republican Party is increasingly dependent on its older and older and older voting base. That is not a situation. And I think Trump understands this better than Paul Ryan does um, or Mike Pence. If you are depending on Florida, like boomer old voters, this is not the time to talk about Social Security. Um, and yes, like you could obviously make different governing decisions when it comes to like your presidency in 2025. But I actually have no idea why Nikki Haley right now is talking about raising the retirement age. Right. Um, I, I, I actually like at a literal level, because like, again, this is, this is, this is the honest sexual truth about politics. Like you, you, it's, it's a game, like it's a competition and it makes no sense at all to take like your weakest, weakest issue um, and just for continuing to throw it um, in front of voters when like very clearly they don't want to hear that. And I think frankly, it's just an evidence of the fact that the GOP is honestly um, captured by plutocracy. Like honestly, like the, the people who want to hear that are donors or what they're kind of hoping. And this is, this is like the unsexy realignment. We could talk about the realignment of like working class, um, you know, Latinos, white men and like black men into the Republican party. The other realignment that's happened is that suburban, like upper middle class voters are just like, whoa, this shit's weird. We're just going to vote for Biden. We'll check in in a few years. That's a huge problem if you're a Republican, especially in these swing states. So I think what Nikki Haley and them are trying to do is they're trying to like signal to the, they're trying to signal to these voters like, hey, like, remember your father's responsible Republican Party. We're still there. Mm. Um, so I think that's what they're kind of doing, but they also don't understand that like that voting group, which like I honestly like, identify with at a class level, to be entirely frank. They're not voting on that in 2024. They hate Donald Trump. Um, so Nikki Haley, they don't, they're not, they're going to say like, okay, like that's cute that you're saying that we're going to raise the retirement age, but they don't really care. So that's just point one on the social security thing. But, but I do think though, as soon as Trump leaves the stage, um, JD Vance and like, I think certain like smarter, um, parts of the Republican Party are going to try to hold to the Trump banner on maintaining, um, preserving social security. But if you actually look at the rhetoric that JD, Josh Hawley, et cetera, are really using, it relies so much on Trump backing them up. Like they're very clearly stating, we're Donald Trump's Republican party. We don't cut social security. Um, the second that Trump is off the stage and is no longer able to like basically offer them cover in the same way, I think they're ultimately going to be overwhelmed by the fact that the vast majority of people, I think JD Vance is unique here. JD Vance, and I mean this seriously, I know JD, like I, I consider him a friend. I think he's serious about this. I think JD like actually is fine and at peace with like the 20th century welfare state, most of the right isn't. Rick Scott is not. Mike Pence is not. Mike Pompeo definitely isn't. Nikki Haley definitely isn't. Um, I'm not sure what Tim Scott, what he kind of thinks about most, most topics, but I suspect like he could go either way and he'd probably move in the, in the degree of like, we're the responsible Republican party. Yeah, we're not going to kick the can down the road. Yeah, he's so a he bootstrap would probably, guy. He, he would choose. He would he would choose the anti-social security side. So that's that bit. And then lastly, I think that the Republican party, the main fault line, is just this awkward reality of uh, just political talent. Um, the, the underlying issue here, and the reason why I think Trump is going to win the nomination, is that we just are in this like I think we're going to I think we're going to step back when we read like those big like Oxford histories of the United States when they write the version about the early part of the 20th century. We're basically going to say 
um, the disaster that was the Bush presidency and then Obama jumping in line 15 spots. So we're looking at 2000, 2009, and then the shellacking of 2010 basically created a lost generation of politicians on both sides of the aisle. Um, so this generation on the Republican side did not produce presidential timber talent that could beat Trump. And then on the Democratic side too, um, it didn't produce um, talent that could either beat Hillary Clinton or could beat Joe Biden. Uh, and the funny thing too is the only person who almost beat you know Hillary and then got closer to Biden was Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders was very much a pre-Obama phenomenon. Right. Yeah. Um, so the thing that I'm excited for, and this is my actual, and I had to start like integrating this into the show more. I'm excited for this post- I think what ends up happening is Biden is going to narrowly win re-election against Trump. Um, and that is when American politics is going to get exciting. Because actually at that point, like the three older final bosses of American politics, who I think are all quite talented in their own way, Trump, Bernie, Biden, and then Hillary too. I think she's also talented in her own way too. They are just out. So you're actually going to have like the this this process work itself out. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's an optimistic analysis because I feel like it's the impact of all that corporate money in the system that sort of forces most of the politicians to fit the mold of the same sort of neoliberal ideology. And there's little aberrations here and there. You know, like we've been talking about Trump with Social Security, but, you know, I saw a thing the other week, like his budget director, they released a plan and it was like, they're cutting literally every other part of the social safety net except social security yeah. and Medicare. But like, it is an optimistic the analysis. Medicaid expansion under Obamacare, which would strip 12 million well, yeah, people Yeah, which is great. That's crazy. Well, I mean, he wanted to get rid of Kyle, Obamacare too. And McCain actually saved it at the last minute. Well, quick thing to add though, uh, I'm optimistic about American politics. I would not say I'm optimistic about, when we put it this way, the, the, the Marshall in 2015 who thought a different, exciting Republican party was coming down the line in the late 2020s. I'm not op optimistic for that angle. Because um, Kyle, you and I, like we, I, I always argue with you about like money and politics and influence and those things. I think the reason why I tend to be a little more skeptical of its effect is like, I actually think, so yes, yes, it, it's obviously like a huge factor, but like, I know a lot of these guys, like they actually just hate the welfare state. Um, like take, 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 take Vivek. Like Vivek, um, you know, he's worth $500 million. So I could, firmly attest that um, there is not a, and I, by the way, I've actually heard from a lot of like high rolling Republicans that Vivek is actually deeply arrogant about his money. He doesn't like giving donations. He very much is like in his own camp here, like money's like really, I, I think money has both like convinced him he's going to be president, which is a disaster at a personal level, but it's also kind of insulated him from, I think, the corrupting influence of like a wealthy New Yorker, like offering you like PAC money. Um, I think Vivek's candidacy reveals that like, actually there are just, there is is this like disproportionately powerful, like not merely because of like the money in the system, but also because of the fact that they tend to be the best educated, they tend to be the most like um, ambitious who just like actually hates the New Deal um, and actually hates the 20th century. And if you also look at like Vivek's agenda, like he's saying, I'm going to abolish the Department of Education. He's going to abolish the FBI. He's going to abolish the CIA. Well, not the CIA. He said some intelligence agencies. And I want to offer a quick warning um, to leftists who hear Vivek try to reappropriate their skepticism of the FBI and the CIA into supporting them. Because Kyle, I love you bringing up neoliberalism. If you actually listen to what he's saying, he's not actually saying, um, he's not actually advancing like a unifying critique of US foreign policy since the Cold War. He's not bringing up, you know, like 
you know, MLK surveillance. He's not bringing up J. Edgar Hoover. He's not talking about the 50s. He's not talking about like overthrowing regimes. He's very specifically saying these bad things kind of happened to people who vote for me from 2016 to 2024. Therefore, let's get rid of the FBI and the CIA. Um, and it's actually not just that. He's actually making a broader, like deeply like neoliberal and even kind of like pre-New Deal case against government agencies and basically doing anything. So I would caution leftists about getting excited about a critique, which is kind of attempted to be pitched to you, but is actually just a case for like dismantling um, yeah. I think a lot of like the things you actually like about government. Well, that's yeah. it's, that's, not that's, that's not a libertarian case. That's it's like a radical Taylor libertarian Green take of like defund the FBI, and she happened to say it is right after Donald Trump was raided. And it's not about really getting rid of the FBI. It's more about like let's rebuild it in our image and be even more authoritarian, but target the people we want to target who are our political enemies. But just to respond to one of the points you made there, um, I'm not I'm not saying that uh, these people aren't ideological. In fact, when you when you point out figures on the right, it is kind of part and parcel of conservative ideology that they actually have a principal belief in smaller government. Um, so I'm not saying that money in politics takes people who believe in the welfare state and makes them not believe in the welfare state. So with many, I do think it is ideological, but it's also convenient that that's that you're going to raise mm -hmm. more corporate money because you're like sort of bolstering what they want anyway. But look at like the Democratic side to to make my point here. I mean, there was a time when everybody in the Democratic Party was a New Dealer and they were basically like social Democrats. And then when we brought, ushered in the neoliberal era with the DLC and, and Bill Clinton and Democrats started taking corporate money too. I mean, seemingly over, you know, a five to 10 year period, all of a sudden, every Democrat was no longer a new dealer. Every Democrat became what I would call a status quo manager, which is like generally believe in neoliberalism, mm -hmm. maybe will allow the programs that currently exist to keep existing, but we're going to lead more towards privatizing and l less in favor of like universal social safety net programs. So uh, specifically in that instance, uh, I do think that has, like, there are people who might actually believe in New Deal politics who then back away from that because the only way you rise through the ranks in democratic politics is to take the big money and you take the big money from the corporations and that's what they want. You know what I mean? It's like, we talk about this all the time, but like 70 or 80% of the country wants to raise the minimum wage and we haven't gotten a minimum wage increase. And I think the reason for that is that corporate money props up all of Washington and they're first and foremost serving their interests over the will of the people. And there was that very famous Princeton study that came out, I want to say about a decade ago now, that was like, functionally, we're kind of like an oligarchy. Like if you're part of the bottom 90%, very rarely something that you want becomes law. But if you're part of the donor class, very often what you want becomes law. I... I'm obsessed with this topic, so I'm glad you... I actually came... I don't know if you guys know Mariana Mazzucato, but I uh, literally came um, from an interview with her about kind of like this 1990s neoliberalism topic. So, so several things in response. So one, I think your corporate money slash like go along, get along critique is like best applied to like 2010s Democrats. Um, but for everyone who came before, I want to offer like a, a defense that I really like strictly believe in, which is that like, obviously the, like the DLC, Al from like Bill Clinton, like all those guys, the third way, Tony Blair, like all those people, there's the economic side of them. And we're, I think, 
attempting to like, I think the political fight on the left for the next decade is basically how do we recover from the policy impacts of their of the, of the actual programs they put in. Mm-hmm. But I don't think people on the left engage enough with the political side of 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 their approach, which is like, if you're a Democrat, this is before I think all three of our times, but like if you're a Democrat who went through Richard Nixon um, destroying um, McGovern. Um, you go to Reagan in 1980, Reagan in 1984, George H.W. Bush in 1988. I genuinely think that third way, let's become status quo maintainers politics, A, solved a problem for Democrats because ever since those shellackings, um, Democrats have won seven out of the eight last presidential elections. So that does mean something. Um, and I think it, by the way, is a huge problem though, that for a lot of people who you two really speak to, those popular vote victories a, like, haven't translated into actually winning the presidency enough, but B, haven't impacted people's lives enough. But I do just think that it's, I, I think it's important just to note that, like, if you're a DLC Democrat, you're actually responding to a scenario of, I don't think the left provided a particularly good model for. Like, Mario Cuomo could give amazing speeches in the New Deal spirit in 1984. Th- that didn't matter. Um, because at the end of the day, Reagan still won 49 states. So I think it's important that we separate the political program of the DLC from the severe policy impacts. And what I would really challenge people on the left, like you two, to basically articulate is how can we accomplish your policy goals while also taking the fact that the DLC does give Democrats majority rule in terms of like actual votes for the first time in, you know, 20, 30 years. So I would just, I would respond when you said Democrats won seven of the eight of the last eight presidential elections, that's true. But you know, my contention would be that's not because Democrats good. It's because Republicans really bad and scary. (laughs) You know what I mean? So it's not, I think, sorry to cut you off. um, But I think that um, it's a, it's a misdiagnosis that big government equals bad. And when you go back and look at the phenomenal success of FDR, he had 80% of the Senate, 80% of the House. He won four presidential elections. So to me, I see that model as like clearly the way. And and I just think they misdiagnosed it. Like when McGovern got blown out, I just think it's a misdiagnosis uh, that to say like big government equals bad. And now the era of big government is over, as Bill Clinton famously said. Go ahead. I also think it's a very different era. So, um... When you look at the Obama era, Democratic politics became wholly dependent on the, like, personal, charismatic, right. um, you know, uh, individual characteristics of the president of the United States. Because if you look at what happened to the Democratic Party during the Obama era, it was an absolute catastrophe. Hollowed right? out, yeah. Lost the House, lost the Senate, lost a thousand plus state legislative seats across the country, ended up with trifectas of Republican governance across the country, and then ultimately hand the White House off to Donald Trump. So Obama clearly just followed in the footsteps of the Clinton DLC model and just added like an inspirational trailblazing figure on top of it, which was, um, you know, I was very excited about it when he was first elected. I thought, oh, this is different. This is going to be new. And then we end up with the same, even some of the same figures from the Clinton era in the Obama White House. I think it'd be very hard to argue that that model in that era, after the financial crash and all that happened and the fallout of the Iraq war and all of that, that that was politically successful. I think you have to look at that and say this was where the Democratic Party got absolutely decimated in state houses and in elections across the country. 
Oh, I agree with you. And that's, I should have been more precise about this. That's why I said um, talks on 2010s Democrats. I was just more yeah. talking about like people in the 1990s. So it's a like, different, yeah, it's I, a different I, time, you know? I mean, yeah, and I also and it, think sometimes we collapse Bill Clinton's uh, political campaigns into one when the reality is when he first sort of burst on the, on the national scene in his first presidential campaign, his rhetoric was a lot more economically populist. It was that I feel your pain. I mean, mm-hmm. that was like the core of his campaign. And then after he gets in office and suffers some political defeats, there's a reorientation towards triangulation and the classic sort of DLC approach that we see now. So it is a little more complex, I think, even in the 90s. But to me, it's very clear where the American population is now, which you see, you know, unfolding both on the right and on the left in different ways, is that they see we have come to a very radical place where it comes to just letting corporations have whatever they want, whenever they want, sort of taking over society, you know, which has created a situation where people feel like they have no voice in government or government's completely captured. So the um, the fruits of neoliberalism, so to speak, have uh, have come to a place now where I think there is a, a different political opening. And the verdict on the Obama presidency, to me, is the case in point of why that model of democratic politics, even though the Beltway conventional wisdom is still, oh, that's the way you got to run in order to be successful. I think that that is completely untrue. You know, I want to go to a point of agreement here. I've, I've talked about a shit about uh, Republican candidates. Um, on the Democratic side, something that I find deeply concerning is the Obama voice. Um, mm. I know you two have talked about this. Um, Josh Beto. Shapiro does this. Yes. He used oh, to do this. Josh Shapiro he, does a, it? That's he, terrible. Josh Shapiro, he, it was, there's a, whatever, there's a, people should look this up. I went on Twitter. There's a wild, um, he does, funnily enough, uh, Josh Shapiro does the best which actually makes it the worst if you actually think about it. Um, listen to it with your eyes closed. It's just the audio, and it's like wild how close he got the intonations. Wow. Um, but yeah, Beto, Beto, Beto also used to do this. Cory Booker. Um, that is an example, to your point, of like the hyper-personalization of American politics. And also, I think this is also why, um, and I think the left fell into this trap of like Bernie. I think there are certain people on the left who got like way too like into like Bernie as a candidate, which created just some like weird like after effects that we're still kind of um, navigating through right now, but because Biden is just so unattractive at, at, at a like make him the center of everything. Like there's, there's no one going around doing a Joe Biden um, impression. It's, I think it's actually made things have to be a little more substantive mm. um, than they necessarily would be. Cause this is a trap. I think Democrats fall into Democrats. Uh, and this, this is other like uh, to bring it back to Vivek and his problems. The thing that's funny about Vivek is Vivek is running. A, I, I wish I could have said, this to him. Vivek is running a campaign that's uh, deeply like what you would run if you were trying to be a Democrat. Um, because mm. there is a portion of the Democratic base that is just obsessed with like, uh, this, this is good. I didn't get to talk about this. So like there's a portion of the interview where I was pushing Vivek on his training plan, which I think is actually like, the craziest thing he said on every single thing he said. Like we can debate around, you know, uh, higher education and ESG, but there's bunch of different sizes. The only thing he actually says, I think is just totally wrong. I'm totally confident. It's his idea that he personally, Vivek, is just so smart that he's going to quote unquote train for the next year and a half to be ready to be president. Um, and the way he was articulating this, he's, he's like, look, I'm going to put all these things on podcasts and you can watch the podcast and you can see how I learn. He's like, a we're going to live stream it. Up, 
Yeah. Yeah, but but that's but that's him compete. That's him competing with Pete Buttigieg. He's competing for the totally. thing that Pete Buttigieg does so brilliantly. And, and so I talk shit, but this is what he's so good at politically. He understands that there's a huge portion of the Democratic Party that deeply wishes that either their son or their grandson or grandson or granddaughter or daughter went to an Ivy League school, got their A's, and just performed really well and got a nice husband or wife. In the case of Mike Chaston, um, and Pete was just like he's trained himself to basically appeal to that actual electorate. But it's like, dude, Vivek, there's no one in the Republican Party who gives a shit that you got high SAT scores. I got a, a funny text <laughs> from a high up person in, in Republican politics because they all make fun of Vivek because it's like a joke. It's like very funny. He said, man, this mofo is obsessed with making clear to us that he got a 2340 on his SATs. Like, he just <laughs> needs us to know, doesn't he? He's like, I am just like so smart. So like the, the thing that's so funny here is if you read the political piece about Vivek, um, it talks about how his awakening moment was when he like went to like an Ivy League law school and he saw that all of his fellow future lawyers were just like woke and then he rejected wokeness and that he is where he is he, he is where he is now the actual critique i have of him i wish i was a writer saying this would be a good piece he's rejected like the superficial like very like short-termist reality of like the meritocratic elite in this country in that like they got a little ahead of the curve when it came to social policy questions in the early 2020s while still embracing the toxic arrogance of the meritocracy. Like the belief that because I got high test scores, because I was valedictorian of my class, because I'm hyperverbal, I am therefore fit to rule. I'm better than everyone like this, this, or that. Like the other thing I wish I could push him on is I wish I could actually, I wish I had the balls to ask this because I don't because I'm kind of a cowardly interviewer. I could admit this to you too. I wish I could just say to him, I feel like you decided you wanted to run for president when you legitimately looked at your competitors and said, I'm much smarter than them. Mm. My SAT scores were high. I think this is actually how his brain works. He actually looks at Mike Pompeo and says, Mike Pompeo, that dude had to have the Cokes bail out his crappy small businesses he couldn't even run. That guy was totally a affirmative action candidate for Trump. I'm a, I am going to be a billionaire someday. Like, I am fit to rule. So Vivek has, like, rejected, like, affirmative action AKA he doesn't line up with the law school, but he still embraced the arrogance. But I think people have been doing really interesting without putting this on him because like I went to a state school, um, but was definitely like the type of person who would have wanted to go to an Ivy League school. I could understand where he's coming from. We're also like being like, dude, like you really needed someone to tell you no one gives a shit what your grades were. Because I don't think anyone has ever said that to him ever. Mm -hmm. And it's deeply deleterious to him. Yeah. I mean, to your point, nobody cares about stuff like that, man. Nobody cares about stuff like that. And you do see people sort of like latch on to a model or a mold of like a politician and how to act. Uh, Mayor Pete, Beto O'Rourke copying Obama. You said Josh Shapiro. Thankfully, I haven't noticed that. I haven't watched him talk much, so I haven't noticed that yet, but now yeah. I'm afraid to watch. Yeah. And then look, keep it real, on the right, we got DeSantis doing a Trump impression. <laughs> we, right. got, we got Donald Trump Jr. doing the world's worst Trump impression. DeSantis' Trump impression is way better than Trump Jr.'s Trump impression. <laughs> It's, it's so in true. your also blood, man. How are you coke. screwing this up? Right. That's right. That's right. Yeah, it's funny, though, because I think you kind of nailed it. I've been trying to figure out why I really have a, a visceral reaction against Vivek. Racism. Because I feel like, yeah, you know, I really don't like, really don't like Indian men, as you guys can see in my everyday job. Um, I, I to one too, but. have been around so many people that are like him. 
that have that yep. same sense of air. You know, I used to go to these like young him. leadership conferences, yep. summits here and all this stuff. And you're around these people and you're like, oh, this is terrible. And it, it's, it is the same visceral reaction that I have against Pete Buttigieg. Because yeah, at core, both of them, if they're being really, really honest, have the same rationalization of why they should be president. And it's because I'm smart. I'm smarter than all of you people, and I always have been, and I always will be. And it kind of, I mean, even this is even embedded in his like immigration policy, where he's basically like, yep. we need to just let Merit. in more people like me. Honestly, you know, I mean, that's it. Yep. <laughs> like the this, far right went after him for that too. By the way, did, I saw Jack Posobiec or whatever his name is yeah. on Twitter. Right. Yeah. Well, they want him to be more restrictionist, but you know, it's just and they a different also want critique. him to not be brown. <laughs> yeah. But uh, Marshall, I am curious. So we've talked about Vivek a lot, but I am curious where you situate. Ron DeSantis in terms of, you know, he's glommed on to a lot of like the wokeness that is at the center of everything worldview. Um, He's clearly, you know, kind of a a political shapeshifter. The way he presented himself politically when he was a a Tea Party member of Congress is different from the way that he's trying to present himself now. There was a piece uh, by Ron Brownstein, but I also had picked up in this in the polling quite a while ago, where there's a real um, beer track, wine track divide in the Republican Party between college-educated voters much more likely to support Ron DeSantis, whereas non-college-educated still hardcore, you know, pretty uniformly supporting Donald Trump. So how do you see him positioning himself within the Republican primary? Yeah, no, the the category of politician I'm really obsessed with now are these like proto figures who figure something out, but just can't quite make it to the promised land. Um, I think Andrew Yang is in this category. Mm -hmm. Um, I think Secretary Buttigieg is in this category and Ron DeSantis is in this category in the sense that, um, like you said, He's a super Tea Party guy when he's in Congress, but he, I think, is a very smart guy. Um, I know a couple of folks who went to law school with him, and they are like, no, like, seriously, he's a very, very smart guy. Well, also not being annoying in the vague sense. Um, I, I, he's, he, he doesn't feel the need to show it, which I think good for him. I think it kind of displays himself in how like personally aloof he could be, um, but that's like a slightly different critique. But he sees, okay, there's this Trump moment. Um, things are different here. So guess what? I'm going to be the governor of Florida who raises teacher pay, who protects the Florida Everglades. And for a hot second, he had he was near the top of the polls of like the most popular at a bipartisan level um, governor in American politics, because that was the scenario where what he was working to do was realign the politics of Florida. Like Florida under his rule um, or his you know governorship is now a red state, and he and he and he achieved that. Like he was built in a factory to focus that. Um, I think the frustrating. Re- reality for him is that the same things that helped him realign Florida politics, um, well, it's also like not undercount, like the disaster of it is the Florida Democratic Party. Sure. Um, because that's obviously like, I think that's an undercounted reality, but also like if you're a politician, there, there are plenty of, there are plenty of red state politicians who are not as successful as Ron DeSantis. Um, it takes the, the talent is, you know, uh, you know, when, when you have opportunity to, um, he is just, he is just really going to be stumped by the fact that, um, Unlike in Florida, he actually has competition that's more politically talented than him. That's Donald Trump. Um, you know, like my, you know, I'm engaged. Um, my future uh, family-in-law, like they're they're in like Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. So I go there for like the 4th of July and for holidays and stuff. And I think just like meeting people like out there, not to sound all like annoying, like New York Times going, we didn't go into any diners, so I'm not doing that cliche. Mm-hmm. She talked to an Uber driver. Like, 
<laughs> no, no, we did no Uber drivers. And there was no Trader Joe's nearby. So it was a really, it was a horrid trip for me. Um, but you meet people and you're like, oh my God, like Ron DeSantis can't win these people. Like he couldn't walk into this party and just be normal and hang out because he's because he's competing against Trump. So I, th- I think he's he is just he. Oh, you know, you know what the actual take is? The actual take is this is the last time I will invoke Vivek. So clearly <laughs> everyone in the Republican Party primary and this manifests itself. Um, it manifests itself in specific individual ways for each of them. Each of them thought Trump was done after January 6th. But right. that's the actual awkward truth that they cannot admit. Like they cannot admit that the best case scenario for them would have been January 6th is such a disaster that Trump either gets impeached or he just retires from politics or like he like passes away and we could just move on from him. Um, so DeSantis needed Trump to be moved on from because he just does not have the personal talent to overcome the personal talent that Trump has. Vivek like literally wrote a book talking about America as a nation of victims and how the right needs to suck it up. He was clearly he clearly wrote that book in early in late 2021 and he clearly was writing about um trump um i didn't do a breaking points he wanted me to do a breaking breaking points interview um with him about that i did not i have a limit i have a limit on like what i'm willing to show on your channel crystal so i hope you like understand <laughs> that, that seriously that. um like Sager kept trying to get me to do it i was just i just kept ignoring Sager's text to be entirely honest um, I was like, yeah. but the point is like a nation of victims of vague's book was clearly saying like republican voters trump's gone get over it man up um, Nikki Haley, she clearly, like when she unendorsed and then reendorsed and then unendorsed Trump, the Republican Party is just screwed by the fact that Trump just literally will not like will not die um, politically or like literally. Um, that's the way of understanding the fissures. <laughs> he, yeah, he was. That's right. He was on his way. Uh, DeSantis had his moment. He was on his way. And then Trump, it's like he flipped a switch right after the midterms. He was acting so in such an unappealing way on Truth Social, saying terminate the Constitution, could not shut up about the 2020 election. And then immediately after the midterms, it's like a light switched. And he goes right back to saying, I'm never going to cut Social Security. I'm never going to cut Medicare. Went to East Palestine. He just did a number of things. He released that weird plan of like freedom cities and whatever, flying cars. And it's like he flipped the switch and he's a different guy all of a sudden. And then he keeps attacking DeSantis. And for a while, the high road was kind of working for DeSantis. But then like he tried to hit him back a little bit. And all all he could come up with was like, there were a lot of leaks out of your administration, sir. Well, he didn't, and he didn't even he say it directly. Silly season. He yeah, said silly. He said silly. Yeah. Silly, yeah. silly season. Mike, various we love silly season. Someone was like, silly season is what you were like. I, I don't have children, so I can't speak this, but they were like, silly season is what I say to like my four year old <laughs> when they're like doing X, Y, and Z. Like that. That is just not that is that is not ready for prime time. Um, and that wouldn't matter. That wouldn't matter if your competition is Nikki Haley. It matters if it's Trump, and he's going to walk, and he's going to punch you in the throat. The first second of that debate. Meatball um, Ron. That's the disaster. <laughs> yeah, well, Tiny D. Right. Tiny D, <laughs> Meatball Ron. Many people call him De Sanctimonious, De Sanctus. A lot of people don't, say don't, Meatball don't Ron. Defend, I wouldn't don't say def- Meatball Ron. I wouldn't say don't, Tiny don't, D. Do not, do not invoke Ron De Sanctimonious. Ron De Sanctimonious is Trump's. It's terrible. Like, no one understands Agreed. why he keeps using See, it. See, I, I disagree. No, I, I, agree. I, everybody, I know it's an unpopular opinion, but I don't think it's a bad nickname. But 
Meatball Ron is clearly superior. Yeah, but he can't and, say it. It's too mean. But he's done it so far. He's so like, he says it I would never say it. Meatball yeah. Ron. And meanwhile, <laughs> nobody calls him Meatball Ron. Meanwhile, Meatball Ron has, like, before Ron DeSantis has even gotten into the presidential campaign, Meatball Ron everywhere. This is indelibly imprinted yep, on that's right. America. Like, no one will look at him so, without thinking that now. So he should have, I, Crystal and I have talked about this. He should have came up with just a couple attacks. He, I, I don't mind this. I'm, I'm like pretending to take the high road thing. I yeah. actually don't mind that at all. I think that's a good move. But he has to marry that with a couple of like quick good jabs at Trump. So the <laughs> ones I came up with were um, 200,000 jobs were outsourced under your administration. That's just a fact. What happened? I thought you were going to stop the outsourcing. It continued under your administration. That's one thing. And then the other one I came up with was, look, here in Florida, we lock up criminals and we keep them behind bars. You were freeing drug dealers. You did the First Step Act. If you want soft on crime, go that way. But I'm tough on crime. But look, other than that, I like a lot of the things that this guy did. He was a nice guy, Donald Trump. But, you know, look at the scoreboard. I think it's time to move on. If he did something like that, that would give him a much better chance. But he didn't he didn't have the chops. Whatever they came up with in the room was really weak. It was just so weak. Yeah. Well, he th- and he thinks that he's going to be able to lean into his record on COVID. But everybody, this feels like ancient history. Now. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, that's Twitter. Cares. That's Twitter. Kyle, I want to praise you because I love what I love about those counters. Because, OK, here's what's great about those counters. Um, we're offering free advice to the people of the DeSantis campaign, mm. they're great counters because they're not premised on bodying Trump. Do you know what I mean? Like, you're not saying like, you're not like, oh shit, 200,000 yeah. jobs. The point is, you're just like, I'm not a wuss. You know, right. like, it's, like a, it's, a, it's a quick jab. It's just sort of like, I'm confident. You're not rattling me. We all know why I'm going to be the president and you aren't because I actually get things done. You're, and it's just sort of like, I'm going to do things. It, it's it's so, it's both explicit and implicit versus, yeah. And, and it still retains the high road thing where it's just sort of like, look, all I'm going to say is this is what happened. Here's what happened. Yeah. Telling it like it is. It's like, that's, Marshall that's gets what you do. Me. <laughs> yeah. No, I get it. That's I think great. you're right. Yeah. Well, I think the problem for all of these Republicans, and this is not a new problem, and this was a problem after January 6th, this was a problem in 2016, is they all know that, Trump needs to be taken to like, somebody needs to say something, somebody needs to do something. But they all also know they don't want to be that person <laughs> that tries trying. to do something because you end up getting nuked. And like, this was So why made- are you running for president? This is, exactly. this is like yeah. my crazy yes. pills thing where it's like, yeah. and then once again, like we, I kind of pushed, uh, I'm going to violate my promise for Vic. I kind of pushed him on this. <laughs> so I'm like, look, like, how should we be confident that you're going to sit across the table from Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin, given your lack of an experience? Like the question for the entire Republican Party is like, how can you like possibly tell yourself, you know what I mean? Like you personally, that you are going to manage like the most precarious international like foreign policy situation since the Cold War when you can't even sack up enough to like vaguely push Trump without even <laughs> winking. I know. Like, like, like I, I, I would love, I'm sure you guys feel this way. Like, I wish I could be a little more like, I wanted like longer term of my career. Um, I'm going to launch a podcast, which is a little less policy focused and be just more just like introspective, kind of like more adjacent without saying I'm trying to be Joe Rogan, but more like what Joe does. And say so he's just like having a conversation. Like I would actually just love to ask a politician, like help us understand like what is going through in your brain. I'm asking that in good faith. Yeah. Like, how are you confident? How are you afraid of Trump? but not afraid of Xi Jinping, like right. genuinely, right? Like you, you, you have, China now has a dictator for life who's explicitly stated that he is willing to risk World War III to get back Taiwan before he gets too old to make that happen because he's made a variety of promises. Like that's, that is so effing scary if we just think about it in that framework. So how can you just like look at that and say like, oh, by the way, Mike Pompeo is saying that he would like recognize Taiwan, which is like, 
Joe Biden saying that like he would like defend Taiwan, recognizing Taiwan as like that on steroids. So he has the confidence to do that, but he doesn't have the confidence to like push on Trump. It's just <laughs> well, he's shocking. Trying, but it's his so arguments true, are not good. I saw his CPAC speech. The, his biggest line of attack was like, "You, you spent a lot of money. Right? There was a, a, big, a big deficit." This is my thing is any to the extent that any of them has even hinted at a policy disagreement with Trump. Trump's better. They're worse. Right. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, oh, Mike Pence is different from Trump. He wants a national abortion ban and to privatize Social Security. Right. OK, that's the difference. It is a difference. And I mean, Nikki Haley, same thing. Oh, my but, God. You know, to me, Marshall, um, it the whole dynamic could be summed up of the Republican primary, could be summed up by that series of questions that Sean Hannity, of all people, asked some of them What's of like, yeah. okay, tell, how are you different from Trump? And not one of them has been able to actually land that question. Yep. And so I, I view the same thing. I'm like, look, I understand why you don't want to attack him, but how did you think this was going to go? And I absolutely think you are 100% correct that they had invented in their mind a fantasy world in which he just goes away mm. through mm -hmm. an indictment or something happens. And I'll be there ready to surge into place when XYZ thing happens and Trump just magically disappears because none of what any of them are doing makes any sense otherwise. I... Uh... It's also like a reality. And it's also kind of funny to watch like who's like skipped the race. Ted Cruz is skipping the race. Tom Cotton is skipping the race. Larry um, Hogan. I think there's just a, the, and once again, people could disagree with Senator Cotton and Senator Cruz on their like policy beliefs, but I think they're very talented, smart individuals. The people who are running at this point um, are just clearly at the end of their political careers that have nothing to lose, or they're just like, kind of arrogant upstarts. Like, I get why Nikki Haley's running for president. Like, I get why Mike Pompeo's running for president. I don't think, I actually don't even think it's particularly arrogant. Like, what else do they have to do? Um, so I think it's just very telling that, like, it, Josh Hawley's not running for president. Yeah. Um, right? Like, very clearly, uh, and, and the only reason why Ron DeSantis is running for president is because, like, I think he clearly believes that, and I think this is probably true, this is just his moment. If there is a moment, this is his moment. Um, given COVID, given the win in Florida. And if he waits too long, he doesn't want to be Chris Christie. Chris Christie had his moment. I, I think Chris Christie's too lost to Obama. But like Chris Christie was at his hottest in 2012. Mm -hmm. So Ron DeSantis, the only reason why he's running, even though he's pretty young, is because he's like, man, I would hate to be Chris Christie. I come back in 2028 and I'm like, hey, remember, remember <laughs> how I like nuked those teachers unions over COVID <laughs> the same way that Chris Christie was like in 2016. Hey, remember when I like bought like kind of literally and figuratively that like uppity teacher during that video in 2011. Don't you right. want that to have you? Like, that's what he's afraid of. Yeah, I think that's all fair. Yeah. So, uh, Marshall, we'll wrap up the interview here, but I just want to pay you a compliment before we wrap up. I've talked to Crystal about this. There are three kinds of commentators that are very pervasive that I can't stand. And you are none of them. So one of them is what, what I call the three. The, yeah, please. You, you called yourself a uh, contrarian earlier. Um, I, I would say you're certainly not what I call a terminal contrarian, yeah. which is somebody who's like a doctrinaire contrarian who like, no matter what, like the mainstream take is, it's like, definitely not that. Definitely not that. You definitely don't do that. 
props to you for that. You're certainly not audience captured either, which is probably the biggest problem when it comes to yeah. especially new media, independent media uh, commentators. Yeah, but clearly the problem over Fox News too when you look at Oh yeah, <laughs> with all those internal texts. <laughs> and then audience capture. You're also not uh, what I call a narrative humper, which is somebody who takes their narrative and tries to shoehorn it into every story as opposed to like going with the flow and wherever the evidence leads. So I want to... Uh, I want to say uh, thank you for that. I think you're you're awesome. I think our, our live shows are great, and I really enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for having me, guys. Yeah, hey, our pleasure. pleasure. You want to plug anything before we go? Uh, Twitter, anything? Yeah, yeah, no. So, uh, yeah, let me just use this as the opportunity to like frame myself for like the audience. So, yeah, I mean, Kyle, to your point about like audience capture, um, I genuinely don't think of myself as a YouTuber or a content creator. I'm Sagar's like think tank buddy who like happened to get pulled along on a ride, which I think is like really cool. But like, I, 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 I like to put out the realignment. I'm funded by the Hewlett Foundation. So like we do a lot of work in like the post neoliberalism space. I just like using like this podcast, like breaking points, like the realignment itself is like a venue for thinking through things. I think at some point I'm going to want to like be bigger and like do like really concentrate on YouTube or get, get the clips up there. But um, if you're looking for a place where I'm interviewing people like left, right, and center and just genuinely like asking them questions that I'm curious about, I think that that's a great space. You're not going to, um, and I'm, I'm going to do an interview um, that's around like our government response to COVID. It's less about dunking on people, more just sort of like, hey, like how does this compare to the 2008 financial crisis? Um, whether or not it gets a lot of clicks or not. So I think that's a good way of like framing like what I'm trying to do here. I think that is all well said. Thank you so much, Marshall. It was great to chat with you. All right. So that was Marshall Kozlov. Interesting conversation, I'd say. Yeah, always. I mean, I think your final commentary about why he's so interesting is also really important because he just really is actually trying to sort through issues and say what he genuinely thinks. And he's a very smart guy. And I would say it's kind of tough to be in the position that he's in, where I guess in the past he was associated with the right and now he's more of a centrist and like uh, sort of a man without a home in a sense. Yeah. I think he even said that in one of our live shows, like, oh, I'm politically homeless or whatever. Yeah. But for him, it's actually true. Whereas me, even though, or you too, even though every now and then we might disagree with the left, it's still like, it's still very clear that we're on the left. We have a, there's a clear ideological project that we're part of for sure, even if it's Mm -hmm. not really represented often within the Democratic Party, but there's like an obvious ideological project that we mostly agree with the tenets of. I wanted to get into Russia and Ukraine, but we never we never got around to that with him. Yeah. Because I think he's part Ukrainian or his family is from Ukraine or something he, like that. Yes. Yes. So um, I think he's much more uh, sympathetic to the just like very pro-Ukraine like. So send the he aid. agrees more with Biden. Yeah. Sending them. He has less of a more support. Yeah. And we've I've we've ta- talked to him before and some of the live shows like it's come up before. So that's where I'm getting it. I haven't talked to him in a while. So it's possible his position has shifted. But um, I think it's really fascinating to hear him dig into what he was hopeful about on the right and the way that, you know, very quickly it became clear that any of those promises were going to fall short and how the the culture war came to be the dominant manifestation of the Trumpian right versus some of the other pieces that would have been more interesting to people like us. Well, because that was also one of the biggest parts of his appeal to begin with, probably even a bigger part of his appeal was that he was always triggering the libs, you know? Yes. Okay, he may have sprinkled some popular stuff every now and then, but the majority of what he was doing was like, he hated the same people the Republican base hated, and so they liked him. Yes. That was more of it. And so in a way, you could argue Trumpism 1.0 is just exactly what DeSantis represents now, which is the, you know, culture war grievance nonstop, 
you know, let me fight the fake news media. Yeah, but nobody's going to ever trigger the libs better than Trump. So, like, you can't fight him really on that turf, which is why he still has such solid support with non-college educated Republicans in particular. I think he's the best at triggering the libs. Yeah. I do. Um, but I also think that it, it hurt him for a while when he was just, like, going after other Republicans nonstop. But now for some reason, you know what happens with Trump? It's like he does something once or twice or three times. And you're like, ooh. Like when he went after DeSantis the first few times. Everybody's like, ugh. Yeah. But then by the 19th time, you're like, okay. Right, exactly. <laughs> you know yeah, you like just he wears, wears no longer. It's he breaks no longer through a big the awkwardness. Deal. Yeah, and then gets to a point where it's like, this is what he does. Yeah. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, and I feel like that that might actually be a theme with him, not just with attacking DeSantis, but with other like, you know, um, like crazy wild things that were big news at the beginning. Yeah. But like he does it once, you're like, this is crazy. And then by the time he does it the seventh time, you're like, yeah, you want to execute drug dealers. I got it. You know, you know what I mean? Like, yes. So I think that works to his advantage. And like you said, as long as the people that the Republican base hates hate him, then he's in a he's he's sort of sitting pretty. Yeah. I also really appreciate because it's been something I've been trying to think through and workshop myself over the past several weeks and in part sparked by Vivek's candidacy. I appreciate Marshall's ability to put into words how absurd the anti-woke position has become when that's like, when that's your whole worldview, it's at least as absurd as like the woke side being your whole worldview. Well, it was the original argument against what used to be called the social justice warriors. Mm -hmm. Now they're called, you know, woke scolds or whatever. The original argument was, you guys are acting really authoritarian and that's why we're opposed to you. So for example, TJ Kirk, who is a lefty. Right. He was one of the godfathers of the, you know, anti-social justice warrior movement. Right. On a gamer gate and whatever, right? Yes. And then after a while, what he realized is these people who are agreeing with him and sort of doing commentary like he's doing, they ended up going down a path where it was no longer about, hey, we're anti-authoritarian. We think the joke police are being too authoritarian or whatever. It They just became authoritarians. And so the right. anti-social justice warrior types became um, authoritarian on the right. You know what I mean? Yeah. So you see this with like all these bills talking about banning drag shows, for example. It's like, do you not see that that's also authoritarian? Right. And they cloak it. And oh, no, it's only about protecting kids. It's it's not. It's not. It's just not about that. Right. And so um, that that's the main thing in my mind is that wokeness is now, yes, the people who are anti-woke sound just as much as religious fundamentalists as the original woke people sounded. And now, if anything... The, the anti-woke people go even further because they just use that as a wet blanket to throw over anything they have criticism on. I mean, we've literally, you know, talked about stories where people said universal healthcare is woke or whatever. And it's yeah. like, okay, I, I, I see what happened here. Like you found a thing that you thought has an audience where people are like, yeah, beat up on wokeness all day. Yeah. And now you're just, you know, putting that into anything that you dislike becomes that. I also think there's been already a bit of a self-correction on the wokeness side. I mean, you even have lefty organizations that were being torn apart by, like, call-out culture or cancel culture or whatever, doing reflection and trying to, like, say, okay, this has become ridiculous. This is totally counterproductive to what we're trying to do, you know, mission-wise as an organization. So you see that. And then, I mean, Joe Biden is president, and there's nothing woke about Joe Biden. So I feel like, you know— some of their reflexive reaction to wokeness would have made maybe even a little more sense maybe three, four years ago. But it's already 
there's been a, a self-correction on that side, and they're going harder than ever in an authoritarian direction on the other side in reaction to what was happening like five years ago. When Ron DeSantis is one of your anti-woke leaders and Florida has now banned 600 books under his watch, it's hard to take you seriously. Yeah. And that's the bottom line. He did this whole and, thing and recently. And passed laws against protest. And Yes. Did you see this thing recently he did where he was like, they're showing porn to like kids. And the fact of the matter is 600 books are banned. And some of them, I mean, uh, Judd Legum over at Popular Info, his Substack, he did a good breakdown yeah. of this and showed a lot of the different books that were banned. And obviously, like 90% of the books are totally benign. I mean, you know, you're talking about one was like a cartoon biography of a female basketball player and she happened to be gay and there's nothing sexually explicit in the book in any way, shape or form. There was another one. I think John Oliver talked about it, about, uh, you know, two penguins of the same sex raising a kid or whatever. But it's just like a cartoon book. It's just just like introducing kids to the world that sometimes you have, uh, you know, people of the same sex or gender who are together and that's fine. Right. They're not, you know, it's not like they're showing strip teases or whatever the hell it is. So it's just, it's, it's obnoxious and they are just as authoritarian in the other direction. And I hate it. Yes. Agreed. But I love Marshall and it was fun to talk to him. Uh, yes, it was. Anyway, guys, so thank you for listening. As always, do me a favor, go on over to Substack and pay five bucks a month and you get the video of every interview and you get it a day early. Thank you to everybody who is a paying member already on Substack. We love you guys. And for everybody else, you could sign up on Substack for free and you get the audio version of the podcast a day later. It'll drop right into your email inbox. And so uh, we love you for that. Remember, we don't uh, take any corporate money, ad money. It's all uh, through Substack. So anyway, please consider supporting the show. We love you all very much and we'll talk to you next time.